Shackleton's goal, 1914, to be the first man to cross the South Pole. So to take a ship, sail to Antarctica, walk across the southernmost tip of the earth, so exactly 90 degrees south latitude, then pick up a ship on the other side and sail home. And that goal became known as the Great Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition of 1914. So August 1914, 28 men set sail from England on a ship named the Endurance. Unfortunately, only five months later, it entered pack ice, got stuck, and sat there for nine months until Shackleton gave the order to abandon ship. So the 28 men get off the ship and start walking on the ice, dragging three 24-foot boats until the ice cleared and they were able to launch the boats and sail to the uninhabited Elephant Island. But it's uninhabited. That doesn't help them all that much. So from there, six men need to get in one of the boats, the James Caird, and sail 800 miles through the Drake Passage to get to the inhabited island, South Georgia Island, grab a new boat, new crew, new resources, and then sail back to rescue the rest of the men and head home to England safely. Now, what you need to understand is the Drake Passage is considered one of the most treacherous seas in all the world. The currents are strong, the waves are massive, and the environment is brutal. And that's true even for big boats. What's their plan? Well, their plan is for six guys to get into a tiny little boat, 24 feet long, the James Caird, and travel 800 miles through the world's most dangerous sea in the depth of winter. And oh, by the way, little fact, they don't have a GPS. So Frank Worsley charts the course. How does he do that? By using the sun, which he only sees four times over the course of the 16-day journey. So he only sees the sun, if you will, every 200 miles. While the rest of the time, he determines which way to go simply by dead reckoning. Do you know what dead reckoning is? It's the process by which you figure out exactly where you're at and where you're going by using the previous position and then estimating everything else. Estimating is a nice word for guessing. You guess your speed. You guess your direction. You guess how much time has passed. So four times, Worsley knows exactly where he's at, and the rest of the time, he's guessing. And here's the kicker. If he's wrong, if he's off, even by one degree, they sail right by that island, out into the ocean, and they die. Now I'm thrilled to tell you, they made it. They landed at South Georgia Island, grabbed the ship, sailed back, picked up all 28 men, and they made it home safely to England. But here's my point in telling you this story. It's to highlight this one essential fact, that if Worsley was off, if he drifted away, even by one degree, over 800 miles, they would have missed the mark, and the entire crew, all 28 men, would have died. Well, this morning, in Hebrews, the author is going to argue that if we're off the mark with regard to Jesus, and we neglect the glorious salvation that is ours only in him, then we're going to die a death that is so much worse than freezing in the Antarctic. Which is why the author of Hebrews says to us, we must pay closer attention to what we are hearing about the Lord Jesus, lest we drift away and neglect so great a salvation. Do you hear how that's a sailing term, a nautical term, to drift away? So it's identical to Worsley. 
Only we're not guessing when it comes to Jesus. Instead, we're given the inerrant, the infallible word of God with all of its promises and its complete fulfillment in the Lord Jesus, who is God's son, who created all things, including the angels, and now sits on God's throne for all eternity as we await the consummation when all his enemies will be made a footstool under his feet. So that's where we're going this morning in Hebrews. So if you would go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. One point in the sermon this morning, and it's the title right on your outline, that Jesus is greater than the angels. Is a greater name of son and a greater message of salvation. Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 to 14. The author says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him, the son. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you, the Son, with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth. In the beginning, the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they the angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? We'll stop there. I want you to notice how Christocentric the book of Hebrews is. Because the author is going to essentially argue three things over the course of the book. Number one, who Jesus is. Number two, what has Jesus done? And then number three, why does that matter? So how does he start? He starts by declaring who Jesus is. Namely, that he's greater than the angels. That's verse four. That he has become greater than the angels. And in addition, he has inherited a greater name than the angels. Well, what exactly is the greater name? Well, the greater name is Son. So number one, greater name of Son. Jesus is the Son of God. I think that's obvious from verse 2 where he says, but in these last days God has spoken to us. How? He's spoken by his Son. But it's even more obvious, more apparent from verse 5, because the author argues why Jesus has a greater name than the angels. He says, for or because, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? So the author starts by declaring who Jesus is. He's the son. And he's greater than the angels. But here's the question. Why the angels? Meaning, why does the author start with the argument that Jesus is greater than the angels? And why does he spend so much time arguing it? Well, let me give you a short course 
on angelology. Because both the Old Testament and the New Testament make it abundantly clear that angels essentially have three roles. So number one, they're messengers. So they declare things to the people of God. Just think about Joseph and Mary, right? We're coming into the Christmas season. Think about Joseph and Mary. Joseph found out Mary was pregnant. Obviously, it wasn't his child. What's he going to do? He's going to divorce Mary until an angel appeared and said to him, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. So number one, angels are messengers. Number two, angels are witnesses. So they are present at all the major redemptive historical events, including the birth of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. So they're messengers, they're witnesses, and they're agents of God's justice. If you remember, angels were placed at the entrance of the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve sinned, right? So blocking, so agents of justice, that's in Genesis. And in Revelation, we're told that Christ will lead an angel, an army of angels to execute judgment on the world. So the angels have three roles. They're messengers, they're witnesses, they're agents of God's justice. Here's the problem. In the literature between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Jews developed an unhelpful and unbiblical orientation to the angels because they added to the things that I just stated, the idea that angels are the ones who will rescue and vindicate Israel. So essentially, angels became the Hebrews' messiah which got pushed even further in Second Temple Judaism to the point of personal angels or guardian angels, which rescue and vindicate individual people. So you have to understand that it's in that context that the author argues right out of the gate, if you will, tearing down the bad thinking on angels so that he can build on the solid rock of the Lord Jesus, God's Son. So number one, greater name of son. And we're given four ways, as you can see on your outline, in which Jesus is greater than the angels. He has a superior name, superior worship, superior throne, and superior reign. Now, as we jump into A, the superior name, please recognize what the author is doing. Because in verses 1 to 3, right, he asserts, glorious truths about Jesus. So, so one to three, he declares these things to be true. And then four to 14, he proves it by quoting all these Old Testament passages. So, so one to three, right? He asserts these glorious truths that Jesus is the son. He's the heir of all things through whom God created the world. He is the radiance of the father's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. What's he asserting? That Jesus is God, therefore worthy of worship. He's also heir of all things. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. What's he asserting? That Jesus sits on God's throne, that Jesus rules over God's creation. But he also died for our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What's he asserting? That Jesus will reign as son until all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Right? Do you, do you understand? Verses 1 to 3, he asserts what is true. He declares it. This is true. Verses 1 to 3. Now what he's doing is proving it. Verses 4 to 14. How does he prove it? By quoting one Old Testament passage after another to argue these four things. Superior name, superior worship, superior throne, superior reign. Jesus is greater than the angels. It's what he's arguing. What's the first passage that he quotes? He quotes chap Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, which is a messianic psalm. By the way, when we go through these psalms, I'm going to bring in other verses from the psalm other than what he quotes because he's quoting from that passage because he's asserting truth from the entire passage. He just picks specific verses. So Psalm 2, 7 is a messianic psalm that promises the son will be the Davidic king. In fact, Psalm 2 starts with a question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Against who? Against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, his king. Then in verse 7, the Lord declares, this Messiah, this king, he says, you are my 
son. Today I have begotten you. But he also says, ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the end of the earth as your possession. So the son is the Messiah. He is the promised king, which only gets confirmed when it's connected to the second passage that the author quotes. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, where God says, I will be a father to him and he shall be to me a son. Right after that, I will establish his kingdom forever. So the author is arguing, both from Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7, that Jesus is greater than the angels because Jesus is God's son, Jesus is God's Messiah, and Jesus is God's king. So the name of son has never been given to the angels. They're not the son. They're messengers, witnesses, and agents of justice. But they will never be the son. As we've already seen up in verses 2 and 3, to be God's son is to be God himself. Because the son is the radiance of the father's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. So as God's son, Jesus is God. And therefore, since Jesus is God, Jesus deserves the angel's worship. So A, superior name of the Son. B, superior worship of the Son. Now what's absolutely fascinating here is that the author is quoting Deuteronomy 32, verse 42 to be exact. So just for clarity, at this point he's quoted from the Psalms, Psalm 2, then the prophets, 2 Samuel 7, and now he's quoting from the law, Deuteronomy 32. So he's arguing, if you will, from all over the Old Testament. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms that Jesus is the Son, greater than the angels, which is awesome. But what you need to know is Deuteronomy 32 is a song. It's a song of Moses, but it's a song that is all about Yahweh. It's about God. In fact, just listen. If you want, you can flip back to Deuteronomy 32. We'll be there long enough as we skip through it. Again, what I'm trying to do is help you understand that this verse that he quotes, let all God's angels worship him, is coming in a context of all of Deuteronomy 32. So Deuteronomy 32, verses 1 to 3. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. If you're flipping, Deuteronomy 32, verse 1. It says, So you'll see, Song of Moses, here's the song we're singing. Uh, So by the way, when you look at your Bibles and you see that we move to kind of what looks like a psalm thing, like the way it's laid out, it's not narrative, words all the way across the thing, then you've gone to a song, poetry. This is narrative, this is poetry. So it's a song, Deuteronomy 32. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as rain and my speech distill as dew, like gentle rain upon the grass and showers on the herb. Now look at verse 3. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, the name Yahweh, and ascribe greatness to our God. Then he sings about God as Israel's father, who created them and essentially upholds them by the word of his power. Verse 6. Is not God your father who created you, who made you and established you? Yet, as we know, Israel rejects the Lord their God, and so he punishes them and threatens them that any of his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. Look at verse 39. See now that I, even I, I am he. I am the Lord. I am the one true God, and there is no God beside me. He says, I kill and make alive. I wound and heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. And Moses says this, verse 43, Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him. Bow down to who? Bow down to God, all gods, meaning all angels. So all angels bow down to Yahweh, to God Almighty. Okay, now take all of that, flip back to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. And recognize the author is talking all about Deuteronomy 32, which in its original context is clearly talking about Yahweh, the one true God of Israel. But now the author of Hebrews applies all of those glorious truths to Jesus, the Son. 
So the argument is crystal clear. Jesus is God. So the angels worship Christ. Christ does not worship the angels. The angels declare Christ's birth. Christ does not declare the ministry of the angels. The angels are not called son because Jesus is the one and only son. He's the son. He's God. He's the Messiah. He's the Davidic king who will rule on God's throne forever and ever. Which brings us to see the superior throne of the son. Verse 7, Hebrews 1, 7. The author here quotes Psalm 104, verse 4. But again, the psalm talks about Yahweh, the one true God, because it starts in verse 1 by saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. That's all God, right? It's all Yahweh language. It says, he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. Then verse 4, he makes his messengers winds and his ministers a flaming fire. So the psalmist uses exalted language to describe the angels. But at the end of the day, all that Psalm 104 is saying is that God's angels are his messengers, his witnesses, and his agents of justice. Hebrews 1.8, look at what it says. Of the Son, God says, now we're quoting Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. It says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you. Who's the you? It's the Son. With the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So now just put those two psalms together. Psalm 104 and Psalm 45. And ask yourself, what is the author of Hebrews trying to tell me? Well, he's trying to tell you that Jesus is the ruler. That Jesus is sitting on God's throne because Jesus is God. He's Yahweh. Which means the angels are servants who stand around the throne. But Jesus is God who sits on the throne. Because Jesus is God. Jesus is the king. So angels are sent. Jesus is anointed. Angels are messengers. Jesus is the Messiah. Angels are helpful Jesus is holy and righteous and good. And angels are created. Jesus is the creator. So Jesus is ruler, not servant. Now number two, Jesus is creator and sustainer. Now as we focus in on Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, the author quotes Psalm 102. And he quotes verses 25 to 27. But the first thing that the author argues is the same thing that he asserted back in verse 2. So again, asserts and then argues. What does he assert back in verse 2? He asserts that Jesus is the one through whom God created the world. Now he argues for that. He proves that using Psalm 102 verse 25, which says, You, O Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. So Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of the world. But what's the implication in this specific context? If he's the creator and the sustainer, who are the angels? They're the creation. Jesus is the creator. Angels are the creation. Let's pause to just think about that for a moment. Most of you know that the Crosswalk Ministry has been walking through A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy. I would highly recommend that to anybody who is interested. So we're walking through The Knowledge of the Holy. One of Tozer's chapters is on the transcendence of God. And he explains the incredible difference between the creator and the creation, which I don't think we get very well. 
So let me read from Tozer. Tozer says, We must not think of God as highest in an ascending order of beings, starting with a single cell and then working our way up to a fish, to a bird, to an animal, to an angel, to an archangel, and then to God. Tozer argues this would be to grant God preeminence over creation, but that is not enough. We must grant him transcendence in the fullest meaning of that word, because God forever stands apart in unapproachable light. So he's as high above the archangels as above a caterpillar. For the gulf that separates the archangel from the caterpillar is finite, whereas the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. So the caterpillar and the archangel, though far removed from one another, right, you understand? Caterpillar, archangel, those are a big difference. Caterpillar, archangel, archangel, way more significant. But he's saying the gulf, that the caterpillar and the archangel, though far removed from one another, are on the same scale. Whereas God, as the creator and the sustainer of the world, is on another scale altogether. Do you understand what he's saying? Finite, infinite. Creation, creator. You hear what I'm saying? Eyebrows should go up. This should be like that. Okay, here. Creation is down here on the floor. Low, low, way down here. Creator is way up here. Like you need to get a hold of this this morning. Creator is up here. Hear what I'm saying? Here we go. Creation is down here. Caterpillar is down here. Archangel is still down here. Creator is up here. Up here. Promise? <laughs> Radically different. We have to get a hold of that. The finite versus the infinite. The created versus the creator. Jesus is greater than the angels. Why? Because Jesus is the creator. Angels are creation. There's no way the angels could be greater. Jesus is greater than the angels. Are we getting that? Okay. Catch my breath. Not possible for the angels to be greater than Jesus. The creator is in a whole other category altogether, which includes the reality, number three, that Jesus is eternal and forever. In fact, look at how the quote continues. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. So the heavens, the work of his hands, will perish, but God remains. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you, God, are the same. And your years will have no end. What's the point? The point is that Jesus is eternal and forever. And Jesus is immutable and unchanging because Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son. And Jesus is greater than the angels, who are all just a part of God's created order. And that's true of all creation. It will perish because it's temporary. So the contrast is specifically between a permanent and the temporary. So creation, by definition, is temporary. Creation will perish. It will wear out like a garment that gets old. Some material that gets thin, worn, starts to have holes. But the sun, the sun will never wear out. The sun will never, ever perish. The sun will never diminish. The sun is eternal. He's forever. The sun is greater than the angels. Now again, let's pause. Let's just think about eternity 
for a moment and specifically ask, what does eternity have to do with us? Again, A.W. Tozer is helpful. He says, because God's nature is infinite, everything that flows out of him is infinite as well. We poor creatures are constantly frustrated by limitations imposed on us. The days of our lives, they fly by so quickly. In fact, life is a short and fevered rehearsal for a concert we cannot stay to give. So just when we appear to have obtained some proficiency in this life, we are forced to lay our instruments down. And as a result, for those who are outside of Christ, time is a devouring beast. But how completely satisfying it is to turn from our limitations to a God who has none. Because for him, time does not pass. It remains. And for those who are in Christ, they share with God all the riches of limitless time and endless years. So for the sons of the new creation, time now crouches and purrs and licks their hands. Because the enemy of the old man has now become the friend of the new man. Because the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus is as as limitless as God himself. So in God as a believer, there is life enough for all and there is time enough to enjoy it. Isn't that glorious? So because the Son is eternal and forever... He can offer eternal life if you just believe in him. But Jesus is not just eternal and forever. He's also, number four, immutable and unchanging, which is exactly what the author of Hebrews is arguing. Verse 12 says, like a garment, the works of God's hands will change, but you, Jesus, are the same and your years have no end. They change. Jesus is the same. Jesus is immutable and unchanging. Why does that matter? Well, because we live in a world that is constantly changing. Our world is constantly changing. People change, change their minds, change their opinion, change their attitude. They change their perspective. Things in our life change, change our clothes, change houses, change jobs, change friends. We even change spouses. And the weather changes. Friday was cold and rainy, so we canceled the turkey bowl. Yesterday was beautiful. Blue skies and sunshine. So the world is literally, constantly, always changing. But not God. And not the Lord Jesus. Just think with me for a second how encouraging that is. That God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not flippant. He's not changing. His view on sin has always been the same. He hates it, and he will judge it. But his attitude with regard to those who put their faith in Christ is equally unchanging and unwavering. God never changes his his mood. He never cools in his affection or loses enthusiasm for those who believe in the unchanging son. His attitude toward sin is the same now as when he drove out the sinful man from the Garden of Eden, but his attitude toward the sinner who believes in Jesus is the same as when the Lord Jesus declared in Matthew 11, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. That offer is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The warning of judgment is the same yesterday, today, forever. But the opportunity to believe in the unchanging Savior, the same. Repent. Believe. Why am I telling you this? Because the reality that Jesus is creator and sustainer, eternal and forever, immutable and unchanging, is not just to prove 
that Jesus is greater than the angels, which he obviously is. But it's also necessary so he can make propitiation for our sins and sit down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty where he rules and where he reigns for all eternity and where he's able to offer rest for your souls because Jesus is the Son and Jesus is the Savior of all who believe in him. And Jesus will reign from God's eternal throne over all of his enemies. Look at what the author says in verses 13 and 14. So D, superior reign of the Son. Author says, verse 13, and to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Then he says, right before he goes to application, are they not all, meaning are the angels not all ministering spirits sent out to serve, notice, for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So Jesus is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And to argue that point, the author quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. We're going to hear that psalm over and over again in Hebrews because Psalm 110 speaks of a king who's also a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So Psalm 110 is literally at the heart of everything the author is arguing, that Jesus is a greater priest serving as a greater mediator, offering a greater sacrifice and mediating a greater covenant. But here he argues Psalm 110 to highlight Jesus' superior reign which includes judging his enemies. So he quotes verse 1. But listen to what else the psalmist says in Psalm 110. Here's verses 5 to 7 to to give you an idea of the horror reality of him ruling over all of his enemies. Verse 5 says, The Lord is at your right hand, so the sun will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. And he will execute judgment among all the nations, filling them, all the nations, with corpses. So absolutely, all enemies will be put under Jesus' feet, and this will happen on the day of judgment. And that day is coming. But it's not today, is it? Today is still the day of salvation. So the sun reigns, and the angels serve. And who do they serve? They serve the church. That's what verse 14 says. The sun rules and reigns, and the angels serve and minister to those who are to inherit salvation. Because Jesus is greater than the angels in every way. Now, knowing all of that... And hearing all the different ways in which Jesus is greater than the angels. Wouldn't it be the epitome of foolishness to turn away from this son? To reject the forgiveness, the salvation, and the redemption that is being offered only in him. By the creator and sustainer, eternal and forever, immutable and unchanging, prophet, priest, and king. Who will rule and reign over all the earth and put all his enemies under his feet. Can you even imagine neglecting this son and neglecting the salvation that's only in him? If that's even a consideration in your mind, the author has something to say about it. Which brings us to number two, the greater message of salvation. Follow along as I read chapter two, verses one to four. The author says, therefore, We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. 
Do you see how we've so clearly moved to application? The author says, therefore. So he wants to tell us exactly how to respond to all of these glorious reasons why Jesus is greater than the angels that he gave us in verses 4 to 14. He wants you to respond, therefore. So A, response required. And the truth is, he says it twice, just to make sure that we don't miss it. So number one, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away. And number two, we must not neglect so great a salvation. But it's not just response required, it's also reasons given. Because as we look at these verses, there's three clear arguments made, three reasons. First is in verse two, the author says, the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable. What message is he talking about? Well, he tells us the message where every transgression receives a just retribution. So he's talking about the old covenant because that's what the law declared, that every sin would be punished and every act of obedience would be blessed. That's what Deuteronomy 30 tells us. God says, I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. Therefore, choose life, obey me, and be blessed. Because if you choose to disobey, you're choosing the curse. You're choosing judgment. And that message was absolutely reliable because the majority of Israel disobeyed and they were cursed. They were judged. So what's the author's point? The point is that if God judged all those people for neglecting the message of the old covenant that came through the messengers of the angels, then how much more will God judge those who neglect this greater, this more glorious message of salvation that comes to us through the Son? So reason number one, greater message. Reason number two, greater authentication. Verse three, look at what it says. He says, it was spoken by the Lord. So direct revelation. It was attested to us by those who heard. Those are eyewitness accounts. And God provided tons of evidence, signs and wonders and various miracles. And God gave gifts, which confirm Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Because now he sits on God's throne and he gives out gifts of the Spirit. All according to his good and perfect will. So greater message, greater authentication, and greater warning. Because there's clearly an escalation here between the angel's message of judgment, the old covenant, and the son's message of salvation, the new covenant. That's why the author says, we must pay much closer attention lest we drift away. I want you to remember where we started this morning. Frank Worsley, six-man crew aboard the James Caird. If Worsley was off, even by one degree, if they drifted away even a little bit, over the course of 800 miles, they would have missed the island and all 28 men would have ended up dead. So here we are, the author of Hebrews, arguing from the inerrant, infallible word of God, passage after passage, so that we might be off, that we might not be off, not even by one degree, that we might not drift away from who the Lord Jesus is greater than the angels. Because to be off is to be spiritually dead. So he writes, so that we might know beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus is greater than the angels, that he has a greater name, which results in greater worship on a greater throne with a greater reign. Philippians 2.10 says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ is the Son, that Jesus Christ deserves their eternal worship because every enemy will be placed under his foot when he rules and he reigns on God's throne forever and ever. So here's the question. How are you going to respond to this Jesus, this Son?
Are you going to neglect so great a salvation and continue drifting along aimless and uncertain, distracted and discouraged as to how your life is going? Are you seriously going to just slide by and miss what is being offered to you this morning? To be reconciled to God for all eternity, to know your soul is secure forever, to know that you're going to heaven when you die, to know that you're on the right team, the team that will rule and reign for all eternity, rather than being an enemy that will be placed under his feet? Are you going to neglect that? Oh, I appeal to you. Do not neglect the Son but embrace him and embrace this glorious salvation. What does that look like? Well, it looks like repenting and believing. It looks like being saved by this glorious message that Jesus really is God, that he really did live a sinless life, that he really did die a sinner's death, that he really did make atonement for your sin when he died on the cross. And you really do Believe it, that he now sits at God's right hand, ruling and reigning, not over, over, not only over all creation, but over your life as well. All you have to do is believe. He did all the work. You just need to respond. Repent and believe. Believe and be saved. Be saved and be thankful. And to you, dear believer, the same is true. We must not neglect, but embrace the Son and this glorious salvation. How do we do that? And how do we continue to do that day after day, year after year? Well, let me just ask you, how does a person keep from drifting away when they're in a boat? What do you do to hold your place and not drift? You drop an anchor, don't you? That's exactly what we need to do to not drift away from this glorious salvation that is ours in the Lord Jesus. Al Mohler said it this way, to avoid spiritual drift, we must drop the anchor of our souls in the deep waters of God's word. What exactly does that look like? Well, I would suggest it looks like time. Focused time, undistracted time, dedicated time in God's word. That seems easy, doesn't it? Time, time, undistracted time, focused time, time in his word. I think it's one of the hardest things for us to do especially in this day and age where we live on sound bites, video clips, and Instagram. Could you send me a message? Could you make it quick? Make it instant. Instagram. And we love it. Sound bites, video clips, and Instagram. Why do I say it like that? That we're like this, and this is why we have such a hard time. Look at Hebrews 1. What does the author do to persuade us that Jesus is better than the angels? He argues. How does he argue? He argues from God's word. Seven passages from the Old Testament, the Psalm, the prophets, and the law. Seven passages, 10 verses. This morning, you might be like, this is a boring sermon as you walk through this stuff. Seven passages, 10 verses. That's how he argues. And we're a culture that loves sound bites, video clips, and Instagram. What do we need to do to not drift away? We need to drop the anchor of our soul in the deep water of God's word. And we need time. Dedicated time. Undistracted time. Time to read. Time to think, time to wrestle, time to meditate. You know, Don Whitney says this, I'll end with this illustration. 
Don Whitney says, our minds are like a cup of hot water. And the word of God is like a tea bag. So hearing God's word on a Sunday morning is like one dip of the tea bag in the cup. So some of the tea's flavor is absorbed by the water, but not as much as would occur with a more thorough soaking of the bag. So reading, studying, memorizing, talking it over in life group are all additional plunges of the tea bag into the cup. And obviously, the more the tea enters the water, the more permeating, permeating the, its effect. So meditation is like soaking the bag completely and just letting it steep until all the tea flavors have been extracted and the water is thoroughly flavored. Nothing is better than focused, undistracted, dedicated time in God's word. If you will, letting the Bible brew in your brain. That's what will keep us from drifting. That's what would keep us from shipwrecking our faith on the rocks of unbelief. It's time in the word. And time of the word will not only affect our thinking, it'll affect our living. I want you to remember Hebrews was written to believers so that they might persevere in the faith. That's living it out. But you got to spend time that you might think rightly so that you might live rightly, that you might persevere in the faith, endure persecution, and be able to stir up one another to love and good deeds until our king returns and all enemies are put under his feet. Allow me to pray to that end. Lord, we need time. We have time. We just need priorities. Lord, I'd help you. I pray and ask that you would help us to have the right priorities, that we would love the word of God because the word of God teaches us to think rightly about who Jesus is, what he's accomplished, and how it applies to our life, that we might persevere, that we might stand fast. Lord, that we might stir up one another to love and good deeds. I pray that you would be doing that good work in each of our minds and in each of our hearts for our good and for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen.